But other places around the world are experiencing drought and flooding, earthquakes, war, financial problems, other major stressors. And social problems in Japan, for example, have had a major effect on individuals. Listen to this headline. Japan suicides near record high in 2007. This is dateline uh, June 19th, 2008. Over 33,000 people took their lives in Japan last year, topping 30,000 for the 10th consecutive year, despite a government campaign to reduce what is one of the highest suicide rates in the world. A report issued by the National Police Agency on Thursday showed that 33,093 people killed themselves in Japan in 2007, the second highest number on record, 34,000, in 2003, mostly because of debt, family problems, depression, and other health issues. Unlike certain illnesses, the causes of suicides lie in a wide range of social issues, the report said. So what's important is to capture the changes in the society, for instance, the rise in unemployment and escalation in debt, and to continue taking new measures that match such changes. So in spite of all of the efforts by the Japan government, yet here is a near record high of suicides in Japan. When people lose hope, they take desperate measures. But we as Christians have been given great hope and great promise. Even when we face trials, we can have a positive attitude. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We can face tribulations and trials with faith and with hope and with good cheer, as Jesus said, because we have a living Savior and a great high priest who is in the process of saving us. Let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5. A very remarkable scripture throughout the book of Romans, but here in Romans, the fifth chapter, we read in verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 and verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. So there are those who are willing to lay down their lives for others and to save others. Most of you know about the massive earthquake in Sichuan province in China took place on May 12th of this year. There were courageous heroes and heroines who were willing to lay down their lives for others. Parents and teachers gave their lives to save children and save students. One little girl named Song Zinji, age three, was pulled from the rubble after being buried for two days. She was in critical condition and lost a leg, but she survived. But how did she survive? Her parents held each other's hands and shoulders face to face to make an arch to shield the child from the falling building. Her parents didn't make it out. But those parents were willing to lay down their lives to save their child. So it says in Romans 5, verse 7, 
Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. There are many such heroes in that earthquake, and you've heard of other heroes as well. But God says to us in verse 8, He demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't that we deserved saving because we had some goodness. He was willing to do that when we were yet sinners. Verse 9, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. In verse 10, an excellent uh, verse. I hope you have it marked in your Bibles. Romans 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Do you want to be saved, and how will you be saved? We just read a profound section of Scripture. There are many heroes and heroines who have given their lives to save the physical lives of others. But God gives us this awesome promise that He will save us spiritually. Once we've been reconciled to God by the death of the Messiah, then He promises we shall be saved by His life. And that's a wonderful promise. I hope that all of you have that internalized, as a part of your whole process of salvation. But notice verse 11. And not only that, this is this awesome promise, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So my question to you is, do you rejoice in those promises? Do you ever rejoice in God's gift of salvation. The title of the sermon today is The Joy of Salvation. Several weeks ago, I gave a sermon titled, Are You Saved? Uh, This is part two of that sermon. So let's first of all review the answer to that question, Are You Saved? I hope you've all read the article in the May-June Living Church News, Always Be Ready to Give an Answer, which we address more thoroughly the question, are you saved? Let's turn to 1 Peter, the third chapter, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. Again, uh, a responsibility we all have, 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And you are to give that answer with meekness and fear. Or in the King James, always be ready to give an answer. Here in the New King James, always be ready to give a defense. So I asked you a few weeks ago, how would you answer the question, are you saved or have you been saved? How many of you have been asked that question by someone? Have you been saved or are you saved? Okay, about about, uh, 29% of you have been asked that question. Let's turn to uh, Romans, the fifth chapter, again. Sorry, we right there, Romans, the fifth chapter. Again, this is by way of review that there are three tenses or aspects of salvation. There is past, present, and future. We just read the future aspect of salvation. Romans 5, verse 10. 
For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So it's a future tense. And someone asks you, have you been saved? Well, there's a future aspect to salvation. We shall be saved by his life. And what's the other scripture that shows a future aspect of salvation? In Matthew 24, anyone? It's a rhetorical question. Matthew 24, verse 13. But he who endures to the end, the same shall be saved. So we must endure to the end if we are going to be saved. That's the future aspect. What about the present aspect? Is there a present tense of salvation? Is it an ongoing process of being saved? 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 15. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 15. And this is what we all need to be thinking about in terms of our happiness, in terms of our joy. And I didn't know that Mr. Sweat was going to be giving a sermonette on joy. I don't know uh, if he got his uh, investigators to know what my sermon was. No? Okay. Well, I'm glad to know that. Second uh, Corinthians 2 and uh, verse 15, where he says, For all these things... Sorry, wait a minute. Second Corinthians 2, uh, verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Now, that's the King James Version. In the New King James Version, it's that we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. Present progressive tense. And among those who are perishing. They are in the process of dying. Uh, we have a uh, young cat that is in the process of dying, and it's a sad thing. All we can do is just kind of pet her and t- take her to the vet, and the vet wanted to euthanize her, but uh, my wife pleaded that we could keep her for a few more days, so we'll have to see how she does. But, uh, you know, she is in the, pres- in the process of dying, and we are in the process of being saved. I'll give you a couple other references here, which I did last time. Acts 2.47, I won't turn there. But the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They hadn't already been saved, but they were being saved. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 is another verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. So if we were ultimately saved by the death of Christ, there'd be no need to grow spiritually, but we are now being saved. So we've seen a future aspect and a present aspect of salvation. What about the past? Let's again review this. Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians 2, verse 8. As I said last time, uh, we may refer to it as a Protestant scripture, but it's not a Protestant scripture. It's used by Protestants. It's a godly scripture, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Past tense. Now, the uh, King James uh, Version has, For by grace are you saved through faith. So it doesn't give the same feeling that, well, yes, you have been saved. 
But here in the New King James, before by grace you have been saved through faith in that of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God is creating in us the masterpiece of his creation, the miracle of divine, godly, holy, righteous character. And that is a masterpiece. We are his workmanship. What does he mean then that we have been saved? What have been saved from? Let's take another look. Titus, the third chapter. Titus 2. Titus 3, rather. And uh, verse 4. Titus 3. And verse 4. When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And again, the Bible is just rich, and sometimes we just read over those words. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. And uh, I love God's mercy. I know one time I was in such a, a state that uh, I knew it was in the end of the semester. Uh, well, I guess I'll confess. It was the end of my first semester at Ambassador College, and I had uh, had a requirement to do book reports on three books, and I had done none. And it was just a, about three days away from the final exam when they were due. And so I immediately you know, went through the books, spent hours going through them, outlining them, and then giving to them to some girlfriends to type up for me. And one of them became my wife. <laughs> she stayed up late typing that. But that was the result of my pleading to God for mercy. I have to share with you one other item, too. We, uh, in my freshman year, we had uh, Mr. Ettinger was the chorale director, and we put on Gilbert and Sullivan's uh, Mikado, and uh, we're all dressed, the men were all dressed in Japanese kimonos, and, and I was the character Poobah. And the one line, I was about ready to be executed, and I come before the Mikado, and I bow down, and I say, Mercy, my name is Poobah, Mercy for Poobah, Mercy for Poobah. <laughs> I remember that very well, those lines, because I've had to plead to God for mercy in my own life. How do we get onto that subject? Yes. <laughs> because, according to his mercy, verse 5, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom or which he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The washing of regeneration is referring to baptism, to our being buried in a watery grave, and then God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. But what did he save us from? He saved us from the penalty of sin, which is death. Let's turn to uh, Romans 3.23. So we have been saved from the penalty of death, and, of course, baptism pictures our being buried in a grave. But coming up out of the water is symbolic of a resurrection, to walk in newness of life, as it tells us in 
Romans, the sixth chapter. But Romans 3 and verse 23, we find out something that the Protestants don't normally focus on when they say that you're saved, once saved, always saved. Uh, That means once you've pronounced Jesus' name, uh, you're saved and nothing can go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. Or that's another joke of the the airplane. You know that one. Well, it was an automatic airplane, and they decided to do away with pilots, and they had it all automated. So the passengers got on and said, this is a recording. The airplane is about ready to take off. And we're about, uh, then it takes off. We're up about, we're 20,000 feet. Now, don't worry. Everything is automated. Nothing can go wrong, go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. (laughs) That has applications, and I think in many other aspects of our lives as well. But the the, uh, Protestants say nothing can go wrong. You're, You're once saved, always saved. Well, no, it's not true in this life. It is true once we be are born into the kingdom of God, we are ultimately saved, then the statement, once saved, always saved, is appropriate and right. But here in Romans, the third chapter, and verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a sacrifice, a propitiation, atoning sacrifice, by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed. So what are we saved from? We're saved from our past sins. We are not saved from our future sins. And the Protestants don't get that because they have a wrong doctrine to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The King James Version says to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, or sins that are previously committed, as it has in the New King James Version. So in summary, are you saved? And again, someone asked you that question. The answer, by review, what I brought out a few weeks ago, is yes, I have been saved from my past sins by the blood of Christ. I am now being saved, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and I shall be saved by Christ's life, as it tells us in Romans 5 and verse 10. So we do not seek a selfish salvation. Our former association tended to that. We love one another, and we even love our enemies, but we can't do that without God's Spirit. We want them to be saved, because we want our enemies to be saved, because we want the world to be witnessed to. We in love preach the gospel of the kingdom to the world as a witness, and that's one of the ways we rejoice in God's salvation, by helping others, giving to others, and serving others. But if we're going to rejoice in salvation, we need to know what it is. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says this, quote, In English versions of the Bible, the words salvation, save, are not technical theological terms, but denote simply deliverance. And so when you think of the word salvation, you may think of rescuing, deliverance, 
redeemed or redemption. Uh, let me continue. In systematic theology, however, salvation denotes the whole process by which man is delivered from all that would prevent his attaining to the highest good that God has prepared for him. Or by a transferred sense, note this from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, salvation denotes the actual enjoyment of that good. So when I ask you, are you enjoying salvation, the very process should give you joy. I won't turn there since I did last time, but you should know Psalm 51.12. Remember the David Psalm of repentance. And what did David pray? Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. We've given several sermons on joy and rejoicing in our church library, or may still be on our website. Number 177 about rejoicing is rejoice in the Sabbath. Number 410 is rejoice in the truth. Uh, Number 384, the joy of our salvation, similar to today's title. 416, fear God and rejoice. Sermon number 165, rejoice in the Lord always. Let's turn to uh, Psalm 21. We know that David was one who was very emotional in the right way. He had mature emotions. He was able to cry. Jesus Christ cried with strong crying and tears. But he was able also to rejoice, and he expressed that joy. There are many, if you went right through the book of Psalms and also highlighted the word joy or rejoice or delight, uh, you'd find that uh, many times throughout the book of Psalms. Psalm 21 and verse 1, "...the king shall have joy in your strength, O eternal, and in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice." Of course, David was saved from enemies in battles with the Amalekites or the Philistines, and uh, he rejoiced in God's salvation. So let's turn over a few pages to Psalm 35 and verse 9. Psalm 35 and verse 9. I'll be asking the question later on, what should you rejoice in? What are some of the reasons for joy? We're seeing some of them here. Psalm 35 and verse 9. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. Let's turn to uh, Isaiah 12. Isaiah the 12th chapter. Mr. Armstrong, years ago when I was first listening to the World Tomorrow radio broadcast, I remember one time he said, well, now if you're having trouble understanding the Bible, uh, just try reading it on your knees. And I started doing that and it was very, very helpful to me. And also began to mark in the Bible with a red pencil or some other marking pen, and it was just very helpful to be on your knees, not that you always do that, but I certainly learned to have a greater respect for the Word of God, and God opened my mind more in that in those early days. Isaiah, the 12th chapter, and verse 3, Therefore with joy you will draw water 
from the wall wells of salvation. Just very poetic, but very meaningful. Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Just a few scriptures showing how the prophet, in this case the prophet Isaiah, and how King David just rejoiced in God's deliverance, in rescuing him, in the ultimate salvation which he could envision. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Now again, that's Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I no, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's Philippians 4.4. You know that uh, the Apostle Paul was in prison when he wrote that. And uh, if you're ever despondent, discouraged, uh, think about the Apostle Paul being in chains, which he was when he wrote the book of Philippians, and realize that I believe it's uh, ten times in eight verses, even though he's in chains, the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, Rejoice! Now, I don't know if I could rejoice in chains, but I certainly will remember those scriptures if I am in the future. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. This is Isaiah 61.10. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns himself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, and the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord eternal will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. But what is salvation? I've already pointed out uh, it does mean deliverance or preservation. The New King James Study Bible on page 1768 says the same. Uh, The Greek word for salvation used by Paul literally means deliverance or preservation. In a spiritual context, The idea is rescue from the power and dominion of sin, or or as we would say, from the penalty of sin. So salvation is a process. It's deliverance from sin, from the the power and dominion of sin, and it's deliverance from the penalty of sin, which is death. But it is also a process. Turn to Philippians 2 and verse 12. Philippians 2 and verse 12. You've heard me uh, share this with you before. Philippians 2 verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many in here can say that you are doing that? Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, is this salvation by works? No. But it's pointing out that we have our part in the process of salvation. And the next verse is key. And when I feel down, I realize, look, 
I have my part to do. But notice the next verse, the key verse, Philippians 2, here in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Is God working in you? Remember, through God's Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians uh, 1, or 1 Corinthians, uh, it's Colossians 3. Fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, in other words, we as human beings are weak, we give in to temptation, but nonetheless, there's a power there, there's a process of salvation that you have to be close to God, that God will actually work in you and through you. He's working with us as well because he's creating in us, as David prayed, create me a clean heart, O God. But we have our part. And that is a powerful promise. And I hope that you claim that promise, that God is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Sometimes our contrary nature doesn't want us to do what God wants us to do. We have a strong will. And you know of people who are weak-willed. You know people who are hard-hearted and strong-willed. Maybe one of your one of your children is a very cooperative, but maybe there's another child that you have that's strong-willed. And you know you have to treat them and deal with them in different ways. Someone who's strong-willed. The Apostle Paul was strong-willed too. But when he was converted, that strength of will was used by God very powerfully and very mightily. And we need to have uh, a strong will that's in harmony, of course, with God's will. We'll maybe touch on that a little later. The NIV Study Bible makes this comment regarding Philippians 2.12. Work it out to the finish. Not a reference to the attempt to earn one's salvation by works, but to the expression of one's salvation in spiritual growth and development. Salvation is not merely a gift received once for all. We'd qualify that statement. It expresses itself in an ongoing process. Again, another admission that salvation is a process in which the believer is strenuously involved the process of perseverance, spiritual growth, and maturation. So it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, at this time, I'd like you to write your first 100 reasons to uh, rejoice in God's salvation. I don't think you have time to write 100 reasons, but I would hope that you could write 100 reasons for rejoicing in God's salvation. I'm going to give you as many as time allows. Uh, we won't get beyond 12, perhaps, uh, if we even get to 12 reasons why you should rejoice in God's salvation. And really, in a sense, it's not just the matter of focusing on salvation, but the process includes how you're living your life. Are you living your life miserably? Are you living your life in a morose, sad, down state? Or are you living your life realizing that Christ came, that we could have life and have it more abundantly, as it says in John 10.10? 10. All right, here are reasons to rejoice. Number one, our freedom from sin. Remember that Christ came 
and shed His blood not to set us free from sin, but to become slaves of righteousness. Let's turn to that Romans 6. It's a very vital key to the way we live life because we all sin. We know we sin, or I hope we all know we sin, unless you're pretty righteous and we've had sermons on self-righteousness. And if you're self-righteous, you don't, you don't know that you're sinning. You're not uh, monitoring yourself enough to know that you are. And you should know that self-righteousness itself is sin. So hopefully, if you, you know, here's a test question. Uh, uh, are you self-righteous? If your answer is no, you're self-righteous. <laughs> it's a trick question. As we all have a tendency to be self-righteous. We may not be practicing self-righteousness, and you should not be practicing self-righteousness. But here in Romans, the sixth chapter, the verse 16, Romans 6 and verse 16. Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? We heard in the sermonette about obedience brings joy. You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Don't you know that? He asks, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, I hope that you have a joy and an appreciation and a thanksgiving to have been set free from sin. Now, maybe that's difficult, but I tried to, tried to explain it last time. You are not set free from sinning. You are set free from practicing sin. If you're practicing sin, then you need to repent. You need to change. And if we sin, as it says in 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He intercedes for us. And He is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for us. But what a joy it is to know, and I hope you know, that you are free from practicing sin. That should be a fantastic joy to all of you. But again, if you are practicing sin, any of you, you need to repent of that practice. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. But verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we obey Christ. We are slaves to practicing righteousness. And of course, we only do that with the help of God. Let's turn to 1 John, the first chapter, 1 John 1. And here we find the uh, example of practicing sin <clears throat> versus just sinning. 1 John 1 and verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So again, we must practice the truth and not walk or live in darkness. And as, the, as I quoted just uh, 
earlier here, chapter 2 of uh, 1 John and uh, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That is, you're going to sin, but you better not be practicing sin. And that God, and then God gives us this incredible freedom, this incredible liberty from slavery to practicing sin. And I hope that you are rejoicing in that. Let's turn to uh, many other scriptures, but we'll choose uh, Galatians, the fifth chapter. <clears throat> Galatians 1 is just one of several examples of the freedom and liberty that God gives us. Though we pride ourselves in the United States for the liberty and the freedoms that we have, the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech. And, of course, those freedoms are going to be eroded as time goes on politically. But we can be thankful for the time we have now to preach the gospel. Galatians 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, of course, the Protestants... Uh, trans, uh, interpret the yoke of bondage as meaning God's law. No, it's trying to find your own salvation on human effort is the yoke of bondage, of having to do all the rituals in order to be uh, keeping the commandments or the law of Moses as it uh, came up there in Acts the 15th chapter. Galatians 5 verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If you go through the book of Galatians and highlight the word circumcision or circumcised, you'll realize what the context and the meaning of Galatians is all about. But God has given us liberty. We don't have to go through um, those rituals of uh, circumcision as a spiritual necessity. Uh, God says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of God's commandments is what matters. But God has given us this awesome liberty. So, number one, let's rejoice in our liberty and freedom from practicing sin. If you find yourself practicing sin, repent and cry out to God to save you. Number two we can uh, rejoice in is... Delight yourself in the Lord. We already saw David saying he rejoiced in the Lord. Go back to Psalm 37.4. And again, this is uh, one of my favorite promises, that uh, he will give you the desires of your heart. Sometimes you hear us say, well, God uh, doesn't promise to give you what you want. He'll give you your needs. Well, Philippians 4.19 is a promise that he will give you your needs. But he goes beyond that here in Psalm 37.4. He promises to give you your desires, if those desires are godly, of course. Verse 3, let's start with verse 3 in Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself also in the Lord. Okay, this is how we rejoice in God's salvation. Number 2, Delight yourself in the Lord. How do you do that? Well, we'll see later on. Uh, the same way David did, by thanking God, by praising God, by uh, appreciating what God has done, is doing, and will do for him and for us. 
Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. You long old-timers know that I had prayed to go to Jerusalem when started back in 1967 when the uh, Israel took over the old city from uh, the Palestinians or from Jordan in that war and had access to the old city. And I was praying that God would give me the opportunity to go to Jerusalem. And I prayed that year after year. It was my, my desire to go to Jerusalem. And I started praying that in 1967. And in 1984, 17 years later, uh, God gave my wife and me the opportunity to chaperone ambassador students to the City of David archaeological excavations. 17 years I had that desire. God gave me that desire. I had to wait, obviously, but it was such a joy, I even jumped, literally jumped for joy, and I won't demonstrate again as I have before. But it was one of those jump for joy moments uh, when I was told uh, you and your wife are going to Israel, you know, to the City of David excavations. And uh, it was really a wonderful trip. I've been there three times since, um, the last time with our global uh, church, Feast of Tabernacles in 1998. But God will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, commit your way to the eternal, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So it takes patience, it takes perseverance, it takes trusting in God. And of course, as you delight yourself in him, uh, as you rejoice in him, he also will rejoice in you. So turn to Zephaniah, the third chapter. Perhaps you're unaware of this one. Let's see, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Okay, Nahum. Here it is, just before Haggai and right after Habakkuk. Uh, Zephaniah, three, and uh, verse sixteen. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Eternal, your God, is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So God says not only are we to delight in Him and rejoice in Him, but he delights in us. He's going to rejoice over us. I, I just love that scripture in Hebrews 2 because it shows a relationship of Christ and the brethren. Is he going to sing to us? Is God going to be um, vocalizing and singing and giving praise in our midst? Well, let's see what it says in Hebrews, uh, the second chapter. Hebrews, second chapter, and uh, verse 10. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So Christ knows what it's like. When we suffer, he knows what it's like. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. 
So Christ is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. So the Messiah, the Christ, is going to sing praise in the midst of the assembly. As we read in Zephaniah, He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So number two is to delight in the Lord. Number three is to delight to do God's will. Now that's something that's difficult. I already read uh, Philippians 2.13, how it is God who works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Here in Psalm 40 and verse 7, I hope uh, you have that marked. If you don't, it's a very important verse because it comes right down to the matter of our personal character, the matter of our being in harmony with God's will, and what brings joy to one's life. If you're still opposing yourself, which is one of the phrases used in the New Testament, you're, you're not going to be happy. Uh, you've got a will that's contrary to God's will. But here it's a prophecy, actually, of Christ in Psalm 40 and verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. You know, happiness comes from doing God's will. And uh, I know that I have uh, been in circumstances, and I think you probably have too, where you've been frustrated. You've been frustrated in traffic. You're trying to get to a certain place. and Here on uh, Interstate 485 or Independence Boulevard, uh, you're just uh, stagnating in traffic. You're not moving at all, and you're frustrated. Uh, have any of you not been that way? I see your hands. Anyone has not been frustrated? Okay, ever, all of you have been frustrated. That's, you know that you're human. There are no angels sitting here, looks like. But uh, I found that the way to deal with frustration is to surrender to God's will. In fact, I've sometimes said, well, God, if you just want me to sit here for half an hour, you know, in the stalled traffic, your will be done. And when you surrender your will to God's will, the frustration dissipates. I delight to do your will, O God. I know sometimes I've had a listing of people to phone. And I call the first person, and the line is busy. The second one, no one answers, not even a voicemail. And the third one is busy, and the fourth one... So, well, Father in heaven, do you want me not to talk to all these people today? Well, your will be done and not mine. And I plead with God, well, maybe there's something more important I should be doing. But when you surrender your will to God's will, you will be able to overcome frustration. And you will be able to find a joy in life that once you find out what makes you happy. I don't know if you've actually done a personal introspection where you've asked the question, what makes you happy? What, are, what activities make you happy? I know one of the... Uh, uh, activities that makes me happy is when I'm writing a script for the telecast because I'm into a message that's going out to, to people all over the world. And I know sometimes it uh, makes me happy when I'm, I have something, which I have a hobby of photography, and I uh, make up some photos and I email those photos to someone. That makes me happy. What makes you happy? 
You know, you're doing the will of God. If you're serving, you're giving, you're fulfilling God's will, you're doing God's work, uh, you should be able to come to the point, as Jesus said, or the prophetic Messiah here in the prophecy in Psalm 40, verse 7, uh, which is also quoted in the New Testament, I delight to do your will, O God. And notice the last part of that verse, in verse 8, your law is within my heart. And the new covenant is that you're asking God to write on you his laws, that they become a part not of something that you've just memorized. I will recite the Ten Commandments long form. Maybe I'm trying to get, get to sleep at night and I can't sleep, and, and I'll just recite it in my mind. Uh, and, the, and God said, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I'll go through all the Ten Commandments reciting that. But the New Covenant is that it becomes a part of your character, a part of your nature. In other words, you are not practicing adultery or immorality because God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And it isn't something that is external. You see, the way the Old Covenant was, it was the law was external. It wasn't internal. And we have to internalize it to the point where by nature we love and honor father and mother. By nature we will not kill, but we will love our enemies instead. And by nature we will not uh, give false witness or testimony against our neighbor. And by nature we won't covet. That's a lifelong process. But you should be able to identify growth in any of those areas in your life. Growth in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. I I won't ask my wife, but I've done it publicly many times. Hon, have I grown in patience over the years? And she will say yes. I won't embarrass her this time. But have you grown in the fruits of the Spirit? Of love, of joy, of patience, of gentleness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, or meekness? Humbleness of mind, as it says in Colossians 3, and compassion, Colossians 3. So do you delight to do God's will? And of course, if you're following the outline prayer, you're praying at least once in a while. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what can you rejoice in? Number three is to delight to do God's will. Number four is to rejoice in the truth. Of course, we've had uh, sermons on that subject, but for in turn to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And, uh, of course, as Jesus said in John 8:32, that uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And if you've experienced that freedom, you certainly will rejoice. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So number four is rejoice in the truth. 
And uh, there's so many other scriptures that uh, have to do with that. Let's take a look at one more here, Romans 7 and verse 21. Romans 7, verse 21. Are you rejoicing in the truth? Which means, of course, God's commandments, His statutes, His laws, His judgments, the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation as it applies to all of us through God's Spirit. Romans 7 and verse 21. Remember, the Apostle Paul was still expressed his struggle against sin, but he says here, after that struggle, uh, starting with verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, that is, he is the one that wills to do good, for verse 22 For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And the Protestants say, well, just read Romans and Galatians, and you'll see that the Ten Commandments are done away. Well, I'm reading Romans, and it doesn't say the Ten Commandments are done away. What it says is the Apostle Paul is saying he delights in the law of God according to the inward man. And, of course, he has the humility to say in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Because he sees that law within him that uh, wars against the law of his mind, which, of course, is the human nature that drags us down. So number four is rejoice in the truth. We only have 96 more to go here. Number five is rejoice in the Sabbath. And I hope all of you have come to that point in your life But you realize if you're working hard all week, you've experienced the battles, you've overcome the frustrations, you've had uh, stresses, there's good stress, of course, and uh, bad stress, but you've come to the place where sunset uh, rise on Friday evening, and and I have in the past, or just crash, you know, just, uh, okay, and we get my wife together, and we kneel down and pray and recognize the Sabbath has begun, and then I'll just go lie on the couch and go to sleep. Well, I don't do that all the time, but I certainly have done that, uh, you know, from time to time. And I find the Sabbath a delight. And so God says that here in Isaiah, the 58th chapter, verse 13. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing my pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, have you ever called the Sabbath a delight? Our former association was calling it a bondage. And... uh, They uh, were deceived, of course, as I said before. uh, Those who said they're free, meaning they're free to transgress and profane God's Sabbath, uh, eat pork, uh, uh, steal from God and tithing and all that, of course, they're not free. Uh, They're free from righteousness and slaves to sin. And uh, they they were ones that had called the Sabbath uh, a bondage. But he says, those who call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the eternal, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the eternal. Very similar to what we read in Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, the mouth of the eternal has spoken. And of course, ultimately, it means we will be in Jerusalem with Christ as kings and priests. 
But even in this day and age, how many of you have ridden on the high hills of the earth? You've traveled because of the Feast of Tabernacles from, you know, your own little uh, community and... well, I, I won't, uh, there are some very strange little towns uh, in Kentucky and Louisiana, I won't mention them towns, but you've strayed, you've gone from those little towns to a major city somewhere. We have some Louisianians here smiling. But you go to a major city, you traveled maybe out of the country, you've, you've crossed the border, maybe into Canada, or have you gone down to the Caribbean, or have you gone over, over to Europe, and you've traveled on the high hills of the earth, because you delight in God's will, you delight in the Sabbath day, you rejoice in the Sabbath. We've had a whole sermon on it, as I've mentioned, but how do you do that? How do you rejoice in the Sabbath? I'm sure we could have a good discussion from all of you on that, but you delight in the Sabbath by enjoying a good Sabbath meal with your family and friends, you enjoy God's creation, you can take a look, go for a walk in the woods, in the park, as our singles did here a few weeks ago. After Sabbath services, we sing psalms and hymns and uh, study new Bible topics. Uh, you have the time to rejoice before God. So number five, then, was rejoice in the Sabbath. See how we're doing with time. Okay, we have time for a couple more. Number six is to delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, how can you do that if you fear God? How can you rejoice in fearing God? Sounds like a contradiction. Turn to Isaiah, the 11th chapter, and see that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and here's this prophecy about him, had the fear of the Lord. Now, of course, fear is not terror. Fear is an awe and a reverence in the reality of knowing who and what God is, that he's the creator of the universe. I've told you that story before, but I remember asking God to give me a greater awe and reverence for him. I was praying in my dormitory room, and I had, at the time, a, uh, a book from, uh, I think it was uh, Time Magazine or National Geographic called The Universe. It was a hardbound book about so big, and I had it standing up on my desk, and it had a photo of a portion of our galaxy, or maybe beyond that. And I was praying and asking God to give me more of a reverence for him. And I looked up and saw that photo of part of our galaxy, and I instantaneously I thought, where am I in that photo? And if the earth were in that photo, which it would, would not be, but if it were, it would have been smaller than a pinprick. And where would I be? And I tremble at that moment. God just gave me a revelation or a reality of who and what he is, how awesome and how powerful. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent through God's spirit. He's all powerful. And to realize that this little earth is just like, uh, who was it said, pale dot, pale white dot. Anyway, um, the... When, when you see the picture of, of the earth, which has been photographed from space, just a little pale dot. And the um, agnostics and the atheists say, oh, well, we're meaningless. You see, this little dot in the vastness of the universe means we are meaningless. No, it does not mean we are meaningless. It means that God has a great 
awesome potential for our part in the universe. We had the uh, cover article on the Tomorrow's World magazine uh, two issues ago, uh, the end of the universe, question mark. Because God is going to give us the gift of all things, ta panta, the universe. And God gave me that awe and that reverence to see who he was and realize how small and infinitesimal I was, and still am for that matter. But God's love overcomes that feeling of meaninglessness, that feeling that you are worthless, you have uh, no value. Well, you have great value because Christ shed his blood for you. That's the value you have, the priceless uh, shed blood of Christ. Here in uh, Isaiah, the 11th chapter, starting with uh, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the eternal. Verse 3, Isaiah 11, His delight is in the fear of the eternal. Whose who's delight? That the branch, the one that will come out of, uh, of Jesse, that is the Messiah. The Messiah is going to delight in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So Christ himself had that reverence and that awe and that understanding, the reality. I hope all of you have a godly fear. We've had several sermons on that in our church library. There are many benefits to a godly fear. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9, 1 is it. And then Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge. And Proverbs fourteen twenty six, the fear of the eternal in the fear of the eternal is strong confidence. Do you lack confidence? In the fear of the eternal is strong confidence. Proverbs 14.26 And his children shall have a place of refuge. You find that in Psalm 34.7. I've said 37.4 and 34.7. I got those mixed up. The, one, uh, the other one is that he will encamp an angel about you, those who have the fear of the eternal. And there's other, other benefits to her. Uh, Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the eternal leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. Are you unsatisfied? Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the eternal leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visible. Proverbs 22.4, By humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. We've given sermons on the benefits of a godly fear. So, number six, to rejoice in God's salvation is delight in the fear of the Lord. And I'll give you uh, one more out of the top 100 here. Uh, let's do uh, the next one. We'll call it number seven. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 24. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 24. There are many others I don't have time for in this sermon. <clears throat> but uh, here we know that 1 Corinthians 12 is about the body of Christ. We're all baptized into one body by one spirit. 
and verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 12. Um, we start with verse 24, uh, talking about the various members of the body, but our pre- presentable parts have no need, that is, of, of uh, clothing or modesty, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Verse 26, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So rejoice, number seven is rejoice with your brethren, rejoice for your brethren, your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We've had people who have left our fellowship who have been selfish, who've had selfish ambition, who have not had the humility to love their brothers and sisters in Christ because they got jealous when someone else was promoted as a a regional pastor or as a minister or as a deacon or as a deaconess and said, I'm out of here because they did not rejoice in their brothers and sisters being honored, but they had a selfishness and a vanity, which again uh, was manifest, and sorry uh, about that. I'm going to give uh, one more along that line. I'm going to give you one more here. And uh, let's rejoice in one another's progress. And when one is honored, we all rejoice with it. When one is sad, we can have the compassion for those who are sad. This will be number eight, and uh, it is rejoice in the achievements and successes God gives you. Rejoice in the achievements and the successes God gives you. Uh, That's Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. In other words, can you rejoice in the rewards of your labor? Um, we follow the seven laws of success. God wants us to be success. He wants us to progress physically and spiritually. Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, and verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12 for them to rejoice and do good in their lives. And again, when you're helping others, serving others, giving to others, you will rejoice. But you can also rejoice in your labor, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So God wants you to enjoy the laws of success and the fruits of your labors, We've had uh, teenagers that have worked hard here in the local congregation, one of whom uh, received her Red Cross life-saving certification and has been working uh, part-time in the summer as a lifeguard at the YMCA. So we do want to rejoice in our certifications, our growth in skills, and being able to serve and to give others. So I want to encourage all of you to apply the seven laws of success, as I have before. Uh, Mr. Meredith gave sermon number 452, live the abundant life. Of course, Christ said, 
in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So let's apply the seven laws of success and express joy in God's way of life and his gift of salvation. In closing, I want to give you one major principle that as we rejoice in God's salvation, the joy of his salvation, we want to radiate the fruits of God's Spirit. We heard in the sermonette about Galatians 5, verse 22. Let's turn to John, the seventh chapter, John 7. We want to be able to give as God has given to us. In fact, that's what the church's mission is. Freely you have received, freely give, as it tells us in Matthew, the tenth chapter. John, the seventh chapter, we have an opportunity to give and to radiate the fruits of God's Spirit. John 7, we read this, of course, in the last great day at the Feast of Tabernacles. John 7, verse 37, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, brethren, let's pray that God's Spirit will flow out of you, not just in trickles, but in rivers of living water. Loving God is the first great commandment. Loving your neighbors, loving your enemies and praying for them, doing good for them, fulfilling God's will and His work. As we heard in the sermonette, that there is joy in fulfilling the work of God and producing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We need to radiate, we need to project, we need to exemplify God's love and joy and peace. So let's, re- let's understand that God has given us the gift of salvation. We have been saved from our past sins. We are in the process of being saved. And those that endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So let's thank God for all of his promises, for the work that he's doing in each of us even now. And let's also be thankful for the joy that we can have as we express that joy in prayers of thanksgiving, in hymns of praise. I hope that you sing psalms and hymns. If I were to just ask you to get up now and and sing uh, Psalm 1, Blessed and Happy is the Man, I hope that you'd all be able to do it. And uh, happy uh, is they that keep the law of God, and onward Christian soldiers and a few others. So praise God with hymns of praise and also by living each day with a positive, cheerful attitude, by applying the seven laws of success, by radiating love, joy, and peace. And remember that we shall be saved by Christ's life. God has given us freedom from the slavery to practicing sin. That is an awesome blessing. So let's rejoice in the liberty he's given us Let's overcome sin, self, Satan, and society by the power of Christ. And let's rejoice in God's liberty, in his deliverance. Let's always rejoice in the gift of God's salvation.